Welcome to Cybercast, decoding today's cyber issues. I'm Alexander Bolova, production lead at GovCIO Media and Research. At yesterday's Cyberscape Insider Threats event, Deputy Editor Kate Macri sat down with Anjana Rajan, Assistant National Cyber Director for Technology Security at the White House, to discuss the new national cybersecurity strategy released that morning. Rajan explained how the Russia-Ukraine war and high-profile software security incidents such as Log4Shell and SolarWinds led to the creation of this new strategy. You can watch this fireside chat and other event panels on our website, govciomedia.com. Let's take a listen to their conversation. Hi, everyone. I'm Kate Macri, Deputy Editor at GovCIO Media and Research, and I'll be moderating our closing fireside chat today uh, with Anjana Rajan, who is the Assistant National Cyber Director for Technology Security at the White House. So Anjana brings a wealth of experience and expertise from private industry and the public policy arena. So we're going to dive into the nitty gritty of how federal agencies and their industry partners can take cybersecurity policies and executive orders and memos and turn that into meaningful action. So I'm sure many of you in this room are aware the White House released its national cybersecurity strategy this morning. So we're going to wrap up today's event with a discussion on the state of cybersecurity over the last year and the evolving cybersecurity priorities that have informed the creation of this new strategy. So to start off our conversation, um, last week marked the one-year anniversary of Russia invading Ukraine. What has been the role of cybersecurity in modern warfare over the last year and its impact? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. It's really wonderful to be here. Um, you know, I think in the past year since, you know, Russia's, Russia's very brutal uh, and unprovoked invasion of Ukraine, I think three things have become uh, incredibly clear. I think first and foremost that the people of Ukraine are uh, resilient and brave and in an unmatched way. And I think that around the world people are looking at Ukrainians uh, with, with awe and admiration and that their fight is not just for their own country but for democracy around the world. I think number two is that the United States government stands unequivocally with Ukraine. The president was in Kyiv last week uh, showing that we will stand by Ukraine for as long as it takes. And I think number three is that the conflict in Ukraine has fundamentally transformed um, the cybersecurity threat landscape. And I think there's a few couple, a few themes that I think are, are clear to me that will inform where we need to go next. I think number one that the arena for this war exists in cyberspace, and that uh, our adversaries will choose cyberspace to uh, to engage in um, offensive attacks, and that means our critical infrastructure needs to be resilient and defensible for the long term. The day before the war started, uh, we saw that uh, Russia led a cyber attack against Viasat, which meant that uh, Ukrainian's uh, satellite broadband network was temporarily dismantled, making it difficult for uh, the, the, the playing field to be leveled. And I think that's where we're going to be seeing a lot of uh, new um, strategies evolving. And so as we think about our role as technologists in the cyber ecosystem, understanding how do you build resilient systems will become like even more mission critical. Um, I think number two is the way that information operations is being part of the cyber landscape. Um, you know, we know that information operations is often used to inf influence uh, the, the global perception of the war. And this is not new, right? We know that this has been a tactic um, long before the, the, the digital era. But I think what we need to be mindful of is how is emerging technology going to accelerate uh, the rate and, and disruption of this causes? And in particular, what, what keeps me up at night is 
the, the rise of generative AI um, and the underpinnings of the geopolitical ecosystem that will make uh, information warfare faster, more precise, and more dangerous. And I think third is just the role of the private sector. I think it's very clear that uh, both in the, in the past year and in the, in the future uh, to come, the role of the private sector is mission critical and that the, the role of uh, government and private sector uh, partnership becomes um, increasingly important. Yeah. So has open source software played a role in all of this? Absolutely. And uh, this is a good way to kind of tie it to the national cybersecurity strategy where we talk about uh, securing the foundation of the Internet. Um, you know, I think, you know, I think to talk about open source, we have to first start with the ethos of the open source ecosystem. And uh, kind of fundamentally, it is, it's quite a beautiful concept that the ideas of one combined with the ideas of other makes us greater as a whole. And that is like a fundamentally democratic concept. And so we're watching that actually happen in real time in Ukraine. Um, I think we're seeing on the software, open source software side, um, you know, we're seeing the open source community come together and uh, build, you know, scalable cryptographic libraries that can help defend against, you know, Russian cyber warfare. We're also seeing it on the data side. And much has been written about uh, the OSINT community's ana analysis and changing the way uh, the intelligence uh, game is being played. And we're seeing things like open source satellite imagery and geolocation data becoming mission critical in uh, the way the war is fought. Yeah. So before you came to government, you were a CTO in the tech industry and humanitarian sector and had to address the Log4Shell software vulnerability. So how do those experiences inform your approach to cybersecurity from a public policy perspective? Yeah, I'm a bit of an unusual creature in the White House. I'm a cryptographer and engineer by background. Um, and I think what is been interesting is that the world of engineering and the world of policy are actually quite similar because, you know, both require understanding how complex systems work. Um, and so I think there's actually more synergy than uh, I may have I may have guessed. Um, before I came to the White House, uh, you know, one of the jokes we have in our office is that, you know, nobody cares about cybersecurity outside of cybersecurity professionals. And um, if that is true, then we need to actively change that because cybersecurity absolutely affects everybody. Um, and before I came to the White House, I was the CTO of uh, the largest anti-human trafficking NGO in the United States. Uh, one of the programs that we ran was operating a government-funded crisis hotline, 24-7, 365, uh, emergency service response infrastructure that responded to millions of calls from victims and survivors who were in urgent and dangerous crisis. Uh, we're talking about infrastructure that needed to be resilient, reliable, uh, and defensible. And in 2021, when Log4Shell happened, my team and I, like many of your teams, had to pull our eyes off the mission. And I remember thinking, you know, in that moment, um, how many lives are we neglecting right now because of a cybersecurity issue that is caused by an obscure open source logging, uh, piece of code for, about logging that perhaps many of us weren't even aware were in our ecosystem? How much trust have we broken with survivors and victims who are depending on us to keep their data safe? And, and how, how can we fully know that we've actually secured our, our ecosystem and we can't even see the bottom of the ocean and, and really see the edges of this very complex network? And I think for, for you know, looking at Log4Shell, I think it was just a reminder uh, that it is not just cyber companies or tech infrastructure companies that need to care about it. It was the thoughts that I was thinking about were the thoughts of every CTO of every major institution around the world. And it made it very clear that this was a kind of whole of 
ecosystem uh, sense, sense of urgency. And so when I think about how do I bring that lived experience to the policy space, I think it's making sure that, you know, the devil's in the details, that policy as rhetoric is not good enough, that we need to think about how do we actually implement these solutions when you're actually sitting, holding the pen or have, you know, fingers on the keyboard. And I think it's really important for the CTO role in, in particular to be able to translate both because if that policy doesn't make sense in implementation, it's not good policy. And I think that's really something I think makes kind of an engineering mindset in, in, in the policy sector really valuable because it helps bring, again, drive home imp implementation of a lot of these, these ideas that we can all agree on. Yeah. So as a follow-up to that, what are some good policy solutions to securing open source software, especially since everyone is using it? Yeah. Um, you know, in, in the wake of Log4Shell, our former and inaugural National Cyber Director, Chris Inglis, uh, called upon the interagency to um, come together and really understand what were the root causes of the risks in this ecosystem. And so it was uh, the usual suspects across the interagency coming together. And essentially uh, what we formed was what we call now the Open Source Software, Sec Open Source Software, Security, Software Security Initiative, or OS3i, uh, which I now co-lead, and the group essentially identified four main drivers of risk that perhaps will not be a surprise to this room. I think number one is that the, incent the motivations and incentives for software developers to prioritize cybersecurity are opaque at best, and we need to think about like why, what are the motivations when open source developers are building uh, uh, tools and solutions. Uh, number two, the, the infrastructure that is distributing open source software it's hard for them to actually enforce security measures. Uh, it is also hard to have good data that helps understand where the vulnerabilities are. And those are, by, I'll pause there because I think those are things that the interagency has been working on for a very long time to address. Mm -hmm. I, well, you know, I think many of you here are very familiar with the concept of S-bombs and the CVUS managed by MITRE. These are things that I think uh, industry and uh, government have been talking about for a while. Um, but I think the fourth finding that I thought was particularly interesting was that much of the vulnerabilities in the open, in the open source ecosystem stem from issues of memory unsafety. And I think that was something that we hadn't, we had heard of much in the, in the engineering community, but hadn't actually come through uh, into the policy world for, for quite some time. Yeah. Um, for those in the audience who might not understand what memory unsafety is, could you explain what that is in respect to open source? Sure. Um, so, the concept of memory safety essentially describes uh, kind of an underlying property of a programming language, regardless of whether it's proprietary or open source. Um, and it really means that in that language, you're, a developer can introduce vulnerabilities and bugs that pertain to the way memory is stored, both spatially and temporally. Um, so what I'm basically saying is uh, there are a few languages uh, that right now that are prominent that are what we consider memory unsafe, and those are C and C++ mostly. And there are many different types of bugs that come out of memory and safety issue, but I'll explain um, just, just one example. Um, so let's say that I have a, a list of 10 items, and then I write a program that calls upon the 11th item in the list, right? Presumably, we assume that the program would return an error because there isn't an 11th item. In a memory unsafe language, that error check doesn't happen by default. And what ends up happening is it will return the value of whatever is stored in memory. So when you think about the cybersecurity implications of that, it's actually quite catastrophic. It means that I could see data that I shouldn't see. It means I could write data that I shouldn't write. 
means I can access data that was already deleted. And so when you now apply this not to just a list of 10 items, you're now talking about the entire digital ecosystem of our U.S. government, that is becomes a very easy to exploit uh, vulnerability for an adversary. Now, can you actually now manually correct this in memory and safe languages and do that? Sure, but it's not the most elegant engineering and it certainly creates room for uh, missing something so that if you just have one thing that you miss, it makes it's all that adversary needs. And so when we talk about memory safe languages being kind of a, a, a great kind of nexus of good engineering meets good cybersecurity policy, this felt really interesting to me at least to say, just because I talked about earlier, like where are the points where the cybersecurity policy community and the engineering community can see eye to eye, mm -hmm. this felt like this room, this felt like that opportunity. And specifically what researchers have shown is that if you take a code base that is memory unsafe, that's you know, large enough, and you migrate it to a memory safe language, you can reduce the number of vulnerabilities by up to 70%. Wow. Which is pretty remarkable. And so let me be very clear about what I am not saying, because I want to make sure that I'm uh, speaking precisely. What I am not saying is that memory safety is a silver bullet. I'm not saying that if you're writing in a memory safe program, you are immune to any cybersecurity risk and you can go uh, take a nice vacation. What I'm saying is that it's a pretty good lever to pull. And if I were back in my CTO chair and I was building out my cybersecurity roadmap, that would be where I'd be putting my, my best bet because I think about how do I then recognize that my resources to implement cybersecurity are limited. Mm -hmm. And to be very candid, we need to have make sure that we're spending our limited talent on solving worthy problems rather than problems that we could have prevented by design. Right, right. So pivoting a little bit, what are some misconceptions about open source that you've encountered? You know, it's funny. I, um, I think when Log4Shell, although when Log4Shell happened, um, I think the U.S. government understandably was very um, concerned about the prevalence of open source mm -hmm. in our ecosystem. And um, I think there's a tendency for, uh, for, for government to, to want to make it go away. <laughs> uh, and what I think we try to explain uh, across the ecosystem is that open source is not only an, a secure and resilient open source ecosystem is not only a national security imperative, but also an economic prosperity imperative mm -hmm. and a democracy and human rights imperative. You cannot build a competitive business without open source, right? If you are reinventing the wheel every single time, you will not compete globally or domestically. And so this idea of composability, this idea of A plus B is stronger than, than some of it, the whole is stronger than some of its parts, is, is how we compete economically and protecting that is, is a business imperative. Um, we talked earlier about how open source is, is part of the conflict in Ukraine and defending that it's a, it's a democracy imperative. And so I think it's important to recognize that, and this is kind of the posture we take at the Office of the National Cyber Director, is that when we look at cyberspace, we start with an affirmative vision. We don't start with a fear-based fear approach. We start by saying, what is a potential future we want to live in, and how do we mitigate the risk and, and optimize the potential? Mm -hmm. And so I think the misconception is that open source is somehow unruly and unwieldy. Um, but conversely, the, the message I give to my friends in the open source developer community is, Good engineering is good engineering is good engineering, no matter what you call yourself, whether you're a community or an institution or a company, you need to have good engineering practices, you need to have good management of your ecosystem, and that there's a discipline required to make sure that if you're building open source software, you're doing it and making decisions that are secure. And so a lot of what we're trying to do with the Open Source Software Security Initiative is engage with the ecosystem and, and explain that we all win when this thing is secure and that we all have a part to play in making sure that it's 
uh, resilient and secure and useful by all. Right. So I know you have to get back to the White House. <laughs> so um, I have one more question for you before we mm -hmm. head out. Um, more like a two-part question. So I'm wondering if you can give us a like high-level perspective on the national cyber strategy that was just released and how that is perhaps helping to address the cyber problems that keep you up at night. Big yeah, I think I'll answer the second part first, which is what keeps you up at night. You know, I think um, we talk about, you know, left of boom versus right of boom. And I think in government, we're very comfortable. And, and, and in general, I think as, as humans, we're comfortable with right of boom because then we can see, like, the destruction and we can rally others to care. And that is not necessarily the best world we want to live in. And I think we have to start thinking about what is the next thing around the corner and what are the patterns we're missing that we could predict. And I think specifically with open source, you know, what to me are, what's the next emerging threat in open source? Well, what are the technologies that are built on open source ecosystems? The one that comes to mind first and foremost is cryptocurrency. You know, we talk a lot about what happened last November with FTX, and I think the conversation, rightfully so, has been around the economic fallout of, uh, of, the, of this financial system. But we are not talking enough about the cybersecurity of that ecosystem, and especially recognizing, taking the learnings we saw from all these other open source catastrophes, what are the, the problems that are coming over there, and how are we drawing an interdisciplinary nexus between these two things? When you look at cryptocurrency, are we looking at the programming languages of smart contracts, of blockchain and all these things, and, and making the same through line to say, are those built on memory safe languages? Are we understanding the composability and the supply chain of that? And if we don't start thinking about that, it's not just ordinary data that's being put at risk. It's an entire financial economy that will collapse. And it's incredibly important that the cybersecurity community help the financial institution community understand how this works and how we can build this by design. So that's, I think, one thing that keeps me up at night. You know, I'll, I'll kind of close with uh, talking about our, our strategy. Um, you know, this is, this is a really exciting day for us um, here at ONCD and also in the Biden administration at large. Um, I think this strategy uh, is unique in the sense that it is the first time an office dedicated to cybersecurity is writing it, which means that it is bold and it is uh, written by people who have been thinking about this topic for a long time. And I think we're, uh, we're tired but excited uh, to finally share it uh, with all of you. Um, you know, we'll be having a formal launch event in a few hours, and I don't want to upstage uh, the National Security Advisor and National Cyber Director, so I will be careful about what I share. But what I will say is that there are kind of two big uh, strategic shifts that we're calling for. I think first and foremost we're saying that we need to rebalance who, who holds the, the majority of the responsibility. I think too often we are relying on the individual consumer and the small business and the independent developer and the local and state government to defend against, you know, nation states. And that is an unfair burden we're putting on the wrong folks and that what we need to rebalance is the players who can bear that burden, both in the public and private sector, need to pay their fit, do their fair share of cybersecurity. And I think that's something that when we did over 400 table reads with industry, many people agreed with. The second big shift we're calling for is how do we recognize, how do we use market incentives to in encourage us making investments in long-term security rather than short-term band-aids? And I think this is recognizing that, you know, making this a voluntary, uh, is hope, assuming, the, assuming that people will voluntarily focus on cybersecurity is, is wishful thinking, and we now need to recognize that we have to create the, the ecosystem and the, and the financial incentives to 
understand why this is a priority. So you will hear much more from us in a few hours. Um, we're really excited to share this with all of you and uh, really glad that the timing of this worked out so that we could we could talk more fulsomely about it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for me. Unfortunately, we don't have time for a Q&A because you have <laughs> to get back. But we really appreciate you taking the time to talk about strategy and the ecosystem at large and the environment that we're operating in. Thanks so, so much for having me. Yeah, thank you. Cybercast, along with GovCast and HealthCast, is a production of GovCIO Media and Research. For more podcasts and to check out the other shows, head to govciomedia.com. Watch out for new episodes released every Tuesday and Wednesday across our shows. You can follow all of them on your favorite podcast platform. And if you like what you heard, make sure to let us know by leaving a review. And if you have any topics you think we should look into, contact us at newsletter at govcio.com. <laughs>